Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In July 2015, outrage spread when an American big game hunter killed Cecil the lion in Zimbabwe. Last fall, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that it would allow hunters to bring home trophies of elephants hunted in some African countries, although President Trump delayed that decision. These and similar incidents have raised new concerns about species loss, caused to some degree by the spread of trophy hunting, and also poaching and wildlife trafficking affecting many more species than just elephants, rhinos, and great cats. To help us understand the scope of the threat and potential solutions, I'm joined in the studio today by senior fellow Vonda Feldbad-Brown. She is an expert on non-traditional security threats, including insurgency and illicit economies. She's the author of the recently published book, The Extinction Market, Wildlife Trafficking and How to Counter It, from Hearst. She's also co-author of a new Brookings Institution press book, Militants, Criminals, and Warlords, The Challenge of Local Governance in an Age of Disorder. My colleague Bill Finan recently interviewed her and one of the co-authors on the Brookings Cafeteria. Also on the show today, non-resident senior fellow John Austin from the Metropolitan Policy Program delivers another installment of our MetroLens segment, in which he discusses a tale of two rust belts, a vast region known best for its industrial output, but that now also produces innovation. But are all of its communities keeping pace? You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. Fonda, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you very much, Fred. It's great to be back. So we're here to talk about your book, The Extinction Market. Let's start with the visit that you describe in the book to a market in Indonesia. What did you see there? In this place called Yogyakarta, a major city in Indonesia, is a very famous wildlife market where all kinds of animals, birds, lizards are being sold and are being sold to eager Asian customers, often Indonesian customers, but by hardly solely Indonesian customers, in often horrific conditions. Thousands of cages that are often the size of a cage for a canary have often tens of specimens of birds or sometimes hundreds of lizards crammed into it. The animals are exposed to scorching sun. Rarely they might have water in the cage or some sort of food. Often some of them are already dead in the cage, their body is rotting and posing a chance of spreading diseases to the other animals, but also, of course, to people, their handlers and sellers and their buyers. Now, this is horrific from a humanitarian perspective, but it's also horrific in the context of the illegal wildlife trade that the extinction market uh, is about and its intersection with legal wildlife trade, which is also enormous. And it's horrific because many of the species traded very openly, very visibly in this market are highly endangered, highly threatened, often as a result of unconstrained hunting or poaching. Now, Yogyakarta and that particular market is not unique, and that's what makes it all the more tragic. You have many tens of and more hundreds of such markets throughout South and Southeast Asia in Thailand, in China, in Hong Kong, Japan, Myanmar, all over South and Southeast Asia. Now, we hear in the news all the stories about elephants and Cecil the lion and rhino horns and the rhinoceros, the big game. But you're there in this market and you're seeing 
uh, birds and, and lizards, smaller animals. Why are they buying those smaller animals at this kind of market? Mm-hmm. And it's also mammals, various kinds of rodents. And if you were in a similar market in Latin America, which there also exists, you would have often small primates uh, or monkeys. So uh, essentially just about any kind of family and genus of animals that one can think about is traded in some form legally and very frequently illegally and poached. In the context of the Indonesian wildlife market, there is very much an ingrained belief that owning birds, songbirds or other birds is a sign of status. That's also something that has spread to other Asian countries, such as China, where there is a big desire to keep songbirds as pets. But in other cases, uh, you have wildlife markets for meat. Consuming luxury meats, rare meats from endangered animals is seen as, as again, a sign of prestige status, sometimes a sign of uh, aphrodisiac or sometimes a source of aphrodisiacal or medicinal qualities. And indeed, uh, the belief in so-called traditional Chinese medicine where consuming wild products, products from animals and wild plants, is associated with attributes of health or sexual potency is one of the big drivers of the global demand uh, for wildlife. I want to ask you to put the contemporary species loss due to wildlife trafficking and poaching into historical perspective. It seems like maybe a generation ago we heard a lot about it. It kind of went away for a while. Now we see some big news stories. Again, the, the elephants, the tigers, the rhinoceros, the lions. But what is the actual scope today of species loss due to these threats? You're right, Fred. The issue of poaching and wildlife trafficking has repeated itself in several waves. And we are, over the past 10 years, in a huge wave, arguably one of the biggest waves in history where you have many sources of pressure on wildlife. The habitat destruction is enormous. Nonetheless, I would say that apart from habitat destruction and climate change, the two of which are associated, though not fully identical, obviously, wildlife trafficking is perhaps the poaching and wildlife trafficking is perhaps the next threat to biodiversity and species. And we're talking about the rate of extinction currently that's about 1,000 times the historic average. It's really the biggest source of extinction that we are seeing any time since the extinction of the dinosaurs. So catastrophic rates. So what are some of the factors that are causing this acceleration in the demand for animals and plants and other wildlife products? I'll come to that in a minute. Let me just add sort of one data point. The people focus on elephants, and you mentioned that. Well, between 2010 and 2012, in two years, 100,000 elephants were lost to poaching in Africa. That's one-fifth of the population in two years. In other species, we're often talking about poaching at the scales of hundreds of thousands or even millions per year. Pangolin, perhaps the most trafficked mammal, again, at least a million taken from the wild illegally in a decade. And in the case of turtles, lizards, reptiles, or sharks, the rate of illegal trade are often at the scale of tens of millions specimen per year, just incredible volumes of poached and illegally traded animals. Why? Well, the broad source of the latest poaching wave is the rise of purchasing power poverty in new key demand countries, most important of which is China. That is really and has been the biggest demand 
driving poaching around the world. But it's not just China, it's East Asia more broadly, places like Thailand, and even more recently economically developed countries, such as countries like Vietnam. However, I want to point out that there is a sense that it's East Asia, East Asian communities that are the big demand locations. That is indeed the case. However, purchasing power parity has also boosted demand for illegally sourced wildlife products, pets, in places like Latin America, where there is a big resurgence of poaching of all kinds of mammals, primates, as well as crocodilian species, for example, and as well as in Africa. So more money, purchasing power poverty, deeply ingrained beliefs that consuming wildlife is a sign of prestige, perhaps beneficial to health and sex, are the big drivers. But I do want to emphasize another element. There is a flip side to that, that another source of demand, including demand for critically endangered and animals and their poaching, is actually poverty. So, for example, in tropical parts of Africa, so-called bushmeat, often from primates, um, including chimpanzees and gorillas, is often what is illegally hunted by very poor local communities that essentially do not have other access to protein. Let me give you uh, another example. Quite a lot of research for the book in Myanmar, among other places. And I came across communities, hill communities, enormously poor communities in the Shan state, who for a long time made their livelihoods on uh, planting poppy for the production of heroin. And eventually, the government and local authorities, former warlords, eradicated their poppy fields, uh, causing massive economic collapse for the communities with food security maybe only eight months So the communities resorted to, at the beginning, just hunting in the forest for subsistence. But later, since they were close to China, discovered that essentially anything they caught in the forest for subsistence, they could be selling to China across the border for traditional Chinese medicine. And so it was poverty and the replacement of one illegal economy with another that very much drove um, the expansion of wildlife trafficking. And Myanmar is one of the biggest sources of poached and illegally trafficked wildlife in the world. Let's stay on this question of poverty for a minute and look at Africa specifically, because that's where we often think about the case of trophy hunting, very wealthy people paying tens of thousands of dollars to go to these countries and hunt one elephant, one lion, one rhinoceros. And that money supposedly goes to conservation efforts in that country. Uh, But you also talk about in the book that a lot of poor communities in Africa would see that if they don't see the money coming from those kinds of trophy hunting programs, then it would be better for them economically to just clear the land that the wild animals would be on and plant crops. So there's a lot of conflict going on there with these communities. Can you address specifically the question of trophy hunting and how that kind of program can support or not support conservation efforts. I'm very glad that you raised it, Fred. Um, It's a very important and very complex issue that is often treated in the West very emotionally. And I understand the the emotional, visceral reaction. But indeed, there are many pros and cons with respect to its conservation outcomes and with respect to its social justice outcomes. Today, uh, there is very much a tendency, once again, to treat conservation and wildlife protection as merely a matter of countering organized crime. And indeed, organized crime is a big part today of poaching and trafficking. 
However, that has not eliminated the fact that local communities are often very willing participants in the illegal trade. They are often the hunters and the spotters. Although they make little money, they often make much more money in participating in the illegal trade than in observing conservation. So if we want to have effective conservation, it's very important to get the buy-in of local communities. There was historically a recognition of that in the different waves of the evolution of conservation policy. There's a deep association of conservation and preservation of species creation of protected areas with colonialism, with many parks throughout Africa, throughout Asia, being established by white colonialists, often at the forcible and brutal exclusion of local communities from protected areas. And this memory of protection of animals as form of colonialism, as a part of social injustice, is still very present in many of these communities. I interviewed, for example, Maasai leaders in Kenya and Tanzania, and one of them told me in a famous park called Maasai Mara, essentially, look, the white people like you prefer animals over people over us. The conservation project is your project. It's not our project. Well, to the extent that you have this attitude, then it's very difficult to enforce laws if people haven't internalized them. It's necessary then to use force to do so. And that's very counterproductive. And I would say it's also very morally questionable from the perspective of social justice. So that's a long wind up to how can you do conservation, preserve species and habitats, and also address issues of social injustice. And so here is where trophy hunting comes in as one element that should give material interests to people, to landowners or communities living close to wildlife in preserving the species and the habitat. For many local communities, animals such as elephants and lions in Asia, not just Africa, leopards, are a nuisance. They kill livestock and they destroy crops. They move into areas with people because their habitat has been degraded. So, you know, there are many complex sources, but nonetheless, that's the realities they live with, and they often kill people. And so for them, the emotional attachment might not be very high. However, trophy hunting can bring enough money to a community that as long as it's done in a sustainable way, the community, the landowner, might have incentives not to convert land to agriculture, for example, and to in fact preserve the species. Conservation, such as money from trophy hunting, which can be on the scale of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands for a license, can also bring needed resources to park rangers and enforcement authorities. Now, I stress this is all can. Uh, This is the good theory that I am very sympathetic to and, in fact, give a lot of credence to in the book. In reality, just as with the opposite approach, total bans on hunting, whether it preserves conservation highly depends. It depends on whether the money, in fact, goes to the poor community or whether it's captured by elites, whether the money raised is from the hunting is stolen or really given to rangers to conduct their jobs, how trophy hunting is conducted. Is it simply a cover for illegal trade, as has been happening with rhino hunting in South Africa, for example? So it depends on good enforcement and good honest licensing and good initial assessments of how many licenses for hunting are sustainable.
Here's John Austin with a new installment of our Metroland segment. He explains why we cannot paint the Rust Belt region with one brush and one color. I'm John Austin, non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program, and this is a tale of two Rust Belts. Given the economic challenges facing my home state of Michigan and sister Rust Belt states, a dozen years ago, regional leaders came together under Brookings' banner, taking stock of our Great Lakes region's economy and developing a roadmap for economic renewal. Since the 2016 election, when our states propelled Donald Trump to the White House, the whole world's eyes have been turned to the Rust Belt. There is a unique economic and social development storyline in the industrial heartland, a heartland that runs from Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri in the west, across the Great Lakes to western New York, Pennsylvania, and the Chemical Valley and Coalfields of West Virginia in the east. As our northwest territories, newly won from Britain and France, the natural resources and rich farmland made this region an early target for development. In 1830, the Erie Canal opened, railroads were built, immigrants flooded the region to farm the fertile soils, fell the timbers, mine the rich ores, inspired tinkerers like the Wright brothers in Dayton. Kellogg brothers in Battle Creek went to work. The region's natural bounty was converted, building great industries and the industry names of the 19th and 20th centuries. Oil and Rockefellers in Ohio, Carnegie and Steel in Pittsburgh, Pillsbury in Minneapolis, Lilly in Indianapolis, Dow in Midland. The invention of the auto and the assembly line by Henry Ford revolutionized manufacturing and put the world on wheels. Industrial cities boomed across the upper Midwest, and small and medium-sized factory towns sprang up among the cornfields and forests. An interconnected supply chain making cars and chemicals, dishwashers and tooling dyes, cereal and steel. A great migration of immigrants from abroad, blacks from the south, whites from the hills of Appalachia, flooded the region for good jobs. Our workers built the labor movement and negotiated from employers our U.S. social compact, the weekend off, employer paid, not government paid, health care and pensions. The factory and industrial economy created millions of jobs and great wealth in our communities. But beginning in the 1970s, global competitors, technological change, drove a dramatic restructuring of the region's industry, wiping out good-paying assembly line jobs, shuttering doors of employers in company towns. Our industrial economic leadership endowed the region with many strengths and as many distinctive challenges that affect our region's ability to adapt and thrive today in a new economic era. We do have strengths still that matter. We are a big economy still. With a highly integrated Ontario, our states, if a country, would have the third highest GDP in the world. We're home to over 300 of Fortune 1000 globally connected corporations. And in an era when research universities drive and spawn emerging sectors, the Rust Belt has the most expansive network of top colleges and universities of any region, including 20 of the world's premier research universities, more than either U.S. coast, that do a disproportionate share of the nation's research, innovation, and talent generation in all fields, including STEM. We have natural assets that mattered, 10,000 miles of spectacular Great Lakes coastline, miles of rivers, thousands of inland lakes, parks, woodlands, wetlands, all providing a rich quality of life. And with climate change wreaking havoc on the world, our water and woodlands provide a haven and platform for sustainable population and economic growth. But other legacies of our industrial past left us big problems. Much good-paying factory work did not demand a higher education, and a legacy of low education and expectations about education linger. Young people have fled many communities. The factory economy left behind slag heaps, abandoned factories, fouled waterfronts, and 60% of the nation's brownfields. Our road, rail, water, and sewer infrastructure is old and battered. 
Many communities, losing their population, lost their tax base and can't finance basic services, much less repair aging infrastructure, as we've seen in Flint, Michigan. Given our history of racial clashes and red line neighborhoods, we are home to the most segregated communities in the nation. And new tensions are emerging as today's immigrants, immigrants largely of color, while providing a bright spot economically in the form of much needed population growth and new entrepreneurial activity, acerbate racial tensions. The region produces great wealth, innovation and talent, but does not turn it into startups here. Our large pension funds subsidize coastal VCs. Almost half of the nation's pension dollars invested in VCs come from us, but only 12% comes back to support new companies here. Too much of our homegrown talent at our great universities still lands on the coast. Yes, the region has a unique story, but today we can't paint the Rust Belt with one brush and one color. Many Rust Belt communities and their residents are not only participating in, but actually leading today's economic change. As the knowledge economy grows in bigger cities, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee are today economically diversified, dynamic, and growing metro economies. Big university towns like Madison, Ann Arbor, and State College, Pennsylvania are talent magnets, innovation centers, and recession-proof. Our numerous colleges and university satellite campuses are key to more dynamic local economies in smaller cities like South Bend, Indiana, Duluth, Minnesota, and Marquette, Michigan. Some communities that lost their big anchor employers, like Kalamazoo, Green Bay, and Akron, have run smart economic development strategies, keeping talent to percolate new enterprises, remaking downtowns, leveraging new investments in higher education, and providing innovation support for businesses. In other winning communities, the company town employers have stayed innovators, evolving their products to serve growing markets, like truly clean diesel engine maker Cummings Engine in Columbus, Indiana, and global chemical and water energy efficiency expert Dow in Midland, Michigan. So many Rust Belt communities have spectacular locations and special history, architecture, arts and cultural institutions, and other great bones built by industrial wealth. Redeveloped waterfronts, polished up historic neighborhoods, factories converted to lofts and tech offices contribute to the rebound and appeal to millennials of many Great Lakes older cities. Other remote Great Lakes communities have wired themselves into today's economy with broadband so entrepreneurs can play globally while enjoying a spectacular local quality of life. We plan to keep looking at how the whole of the Rust Belt can make an economic turn. The key questions remain, what can the communities that haven't found their way do themselves to shake off their rust? What can states do to help? And what federal policies from taxes to trade, from education to R&D, from infrastructure to immigration really matter to Rust Belt revival? Stay tuned. You can listen to more MetroLens segments on our SoundCloud channel. One alternative that some people have suggested to trophy hunting as a way to generate conservation money is to encourage wildlife watching tourism, mm-hmm, photography. Mm-hmm. Can you address that possible alternative? Absolutely. The issue of photographic or visual ecotourism is indeed the one that many Western NGOs like best as the best policy. The reality is that overall it tends to bring far less money than trophy hunting. And that's under the best circumstances of essentially conservation in southern or eastern African savannas where you have open spaces with occasional acacia trees or woodlands and you have very big iconic animals like elephants, like rhinos, like lions that people want to see. 
photographic or visual tourism becomes all the more difficult in uh, places with different habitat, such as tropical forests, where you might have fantastic mammals like jaguars or primates or sloths, but they are extraordinarily hard to see. So I spend lots of time in tropical forests in Asia, as well as in Latin America, and I get great joy of being in the forest. And I'm also a passionate bird watcher. But I also know that it takes often hours and hours of walking in the forest to painstakingly find a bird or some desirable species of birds, let alone to find mammals to see, for example, jaguars. So if one is not very dedicated bird watcher, for example, average tourist will often not be highly motivated to be spending lots of time in tropical rainforest and hence bringing money for conservation. So when you move out of the savanna, the income that visual ecotourism generates tends to be even much smaller. It tends to be highly seasonal, highly sporadic, dependent on many other factors. So it's much less reliable and much smaller source of income actually than trophy hunting. Well, let's stay on trophy hunting for a few more minutes. Now, there's the kind of trophy hunting where a very wealthy person goes and gets a license and kills the animal and probably takes the animal back home and taxidermies it and puts it on the wall and has something to look at. But then we also see in the news sometimes these field of elephants that have had their tusks cut off or rhinoceros horns have been sliced off, leaving the rhinoceros to die. And you talk in the book about global trade in ivory and rhino horns. Can you talk about the state of that trade and what countries are trying to do about it? Yes, so I must start by saying that many honest trophy hunters would very much distance themselves from that kind of poaching and from killing animals for the illegal trade in ivory or illegal trade in horns. Now, we also know that particularly the trophy hunting for rhinos in southern Africa and South Africa has been very much a cover, very much a laundering mechanism for the illegal trade. So why do people want ivory and why do they want rhino horn? Ivory is very much a, again, a sign of prestige and a material that's seen as highly desirable. During the 70s, hundreds of thousands of elephants were killed to supply the demand for ivory in the West, in places such as the United States and Western Europe. And we saw essentially the halving of the population from 1.2 million to 600, 500,000 at that time for a Western market. You mentioned, you remember decades of campaign against wildlife trafficking. This was one of them. Since then, the market has shifted very much to Asia, where it, again, has long millennia-old roots, but where the purchasing power parity of consumers in Japan, and particularly in China and Vietnam, have gone significantly up. And they desire ivory for various decorative objects, statues, carvings in Japan for personal signature seals. The case of rhino horn has, or the demand for rhino, has more um, varied outlets. A part of it is decorative objects, libation cups made out of rhino horn. But part of it is also an erroneous belief in the medicinal qualities of rhino horn. In Vietnam, rhino horn is often promoted as a cure for cancer. It's not. It's made out of keratin. It's the same thing as your nails or hair. So to believe that it will cure cancer is the equivalent of chewing your hair or chewing your nails. 
nonetheless, in the country where you have very underdeveloped medical care and lack of access to cancer treatment, people latch on to any belief, however inaccurate and even ludicrous it is. So what are countries trying to do about that? There is a global ban on the hunting of elephants and rhinos, except with special permissions. Those uh, legal licenses exist in a few places in the world, even when they can be hunted for trophies, which is where the Trump administration decisions and wobbling on the ban or allowing it again from Zimbabwe and Zambia uh, come in. But there is no legal trade, legal industrial trade, if you would like, beyond trophy hunting in either ivory or rhino horn. Despite this global ban, there is massive poaching of both animals going on, which uh, killed, as I mentioned before, 100,000 elephants in two years and brought down the population by a fifth since 2007. In the case of rhinos, there are perhaps 20,000 rhinos, perhaps fewer in South Africa, the country where most of them are located. And we have seen poaching rate on the order of 1,000 to 1,500 a year. So again, massive rates of poaching that are essentially on par with the amount of animals being born and perhaps surpassing it. So there is a global ban, with the exception of some trophy hunting. But many countries in the southern part of Africa are deeply dissatisfied with that ban. And they are arguing that they should be allowed to sell their ivory and perhaps their rhino horn stocks. And they make the same argument that we made, that we discussed with respect to trophy hunting. Elephants die naturally, and uh, when the elephant dies, the ivory tusks are left. So countries, rangers can collect them, and countries in the South, South Africa, Namibia, have large stocks of ivory. They would like to sell that ivory to generate high income that they would then presumably do go to conservation, to preserving land, to buying land for protected areas and to paying rangers. There is much global opposition from the environmental community to that. And in fact, in 2016, where there was a major meeting of the Convention on Endangered Species, CITES, countries tried to get a permission to sell their ivory stocks and it was rejected. Because the fear is that in the context of this massive vortex of poaching right now, putting any more ivory or any more rhino horn into the market will only stimulate the buying craze and will only stimulate demand and hence poaching. But it's a debate that's not easy to resolve. The other problem, of course, is that when a legal market exists, where, for example, in 2008, Japan and China both bought ivory under a special permission at the time from CITES to buy ivory from those very same Southern African countries, they established domestic markets in those. Those legal domestic markets were supposed to be highly controlled and prevent the leakage and laundering of poached ivory in them. And they didn't. They failed. And in fact, there's massive laundering of uh, ivory in Japan and has been in China. Now, China declared its legal ivory market illegal as of the end of 2017. And we will now see how in 2018 China will, in fact, enforce that ban and the dismantling of its domestic market. Well, this is all a massively complex problem that you so ably describe in the book. But then you also explore policy solutions, which are equally complex. Can you talk about some of the policy solutions that you describe in the book? Mm -hmm. 
I will preface it by saying that it is by far the most intellectually challenging and emotionally challenging project I have ever undertaken. I've written several books and many articles and dealt with many illegal economies and their complexities. And this is by far the toughest. And it is by far the toughest for two reasons. One is that there is really very much a lack of clarity as to what the best policy solution is. That's very different than, for example, dealing with the drug problem and illegal drug trade. We know what works and we know consistently what doesn't work. Now, it's a matter of persuading policymakers and communities about adopting those solutions, but we know what the answer is. That's not the case with wildlife trafficking. There are three schools of thoughts and about five different policy tools. These three schools of thoughts are one that is, are used for legal trade, for trophy hunting and other illegal trade, like allowing illegal trade in ivory. And its adage is essentially wildlife stays if wildlife pays. If people do not derive economic benefits out of species and habitat conservation, they'll destroy them. The opposite school of thought is one that focuses on bans, prohibiting the trade in ivory, discouraging demand, and enforcing wildlife regulations, wildlife prohibition. That school of thought often has to grapple with the issues of how do you get local community buy-in and how can you make local enforcement effective. The third school of thought then says, well, it should be really up to local communities, people close to the wildlife, not global international opinion and global international balance of power as to how wildlife is treated. These three schools of thoughts have five policy tools available, bans, legal trade, trying to get community buy-in through ecotourism, trophy hunting, perhaps suasion, other mechanisms, anti-money laundering and demand reduction. Now, each school of thought has failed far more often than it has succeeded, and neither of them has performed consistently better than the other. Each of them has some very important and highly valuable successes and many more failures. And each of the policy tools comes with some advantages, but very many disadvantages. So one of the things that I think a very controversial finding of the book, and one that doesn't make the book popular necessarily simply with any of the schools of thought, is the argument that wildlife policy should be highly specific. It should be highly specific to species, but to particular policy and cultural settings. And that, however, means that we should resort to global bans and global prohibitions very rarely. And we should be willing, perhaps, to rethink them if conditions change. So my predisposition in the book is often to allow hunting, both trophy hunting as well as subsistence hunting, as well as to allow legal trade. And I say that as someone who would never kill an animal, certainly not in a hunt beyond some sort of inadvertent car collision, for example. Despite the fact that I emotionally dislike it, I also intellectually understand it, what a powerful conservation tool it is, and that relying on emotions is not enough. At the same time, there are circumstances like the current ivory poaching or the rhino poaching where clearly the legal market is not adequately enforced and where the legal trade is encouraging global demand. And despite the difficult consequences of moving to global bans and the real complexities of enforcing global bans, it's time for those global bans in those two markets. And what really compounds the intellectual and emotional challenge of the book for me writing in and really grappling with the complex value, moral, policy judgments as to 
what works better and the value judgment that needs to be made between interest in species conservation and interest in people welfare is that we are dealing with a crisis that, that is very time constrained. In a decade, we can lose many species, including the most iconic ones, and we can lose many genera. That's very, very different than dealing, for example, with drugs, where drugs will be produced infinitely. It's not a depletable resource. Wildlife is highly depletable. And so the policy experimentations, the mistakes then we can afford with bad consequences, but nonetheless we can afford in dealing with issues such as car safety or drugs, we cannot afford in dealing with the poaching crisis. Vanda, I'm just very struck by you saying that this has been the toughest project that you've worked on, because I know you've worked on a lot of very difficult subjects from you know, narco-trafficking and opium production in South Asia, and your new book is called Militants, Criminals, and Warlords. How did you come into this topic, this book? Well, I have been a passionate conservationist bird watchers from very little on. There been times when I grew up, uh, what was then communist Czechoslovakia in the borderlands of periphery. Uh, it was a place of wonderful woodlands and lakes and just gorgeous wildlife slaughtered for communist agricultural production. But I would spend my childhood in the woods looking for birds and looking for animals. So there's been a long, deep connection emotionally and that level of involvement. But also when I was then doing a lot of research on other illegal economies and their intersection with insurgencies, the issue of wildlife trafficking and poaching was coming up very frequently and in many surprising domains. I mentioned the story of Myanmar and the opium poppy producing Shan communities, then replacing their one illegal income with another one. And I would argue that the move to poaching produced worse public outcomes, public uh, policy outcomes than even their previous production of opium poppy. I also was, however, struck in what later on became very specific research for the book that went on for a number of years and took place in Latin America, Africa, North America, and Asia and throughout Asia, of just how intellectually difficult and complex the issue is, as well as the fact that many of the poachers, even if they supply global illegal markets and global illegal supply chains and traffickers, are just desperately poor at a level that's even worse than the poverty of many drug farmers. So, you know, you have communities in Eastern Africa, for example, in Ethiopia, who don't necessarily poach, but they cultivate crops inside national parks. The effect on the national parks is devastating. It's terrible. Yet the communities are just so poor. And here comes my conversation with the Maasai leader. How, how do you easily tell those communities, let your children starve, of which there might be six or seven per family, just so that those rare antelopes can be preserved? Well, Vanda, it's an amazing, complicated issue. I want to thank you for sharing your time and discussing this very important book. Thank you very much. Vanda Feldbaugh-Brown is the author of The Extinction Market, Wildlife Trafficking and How to Counter It, from London-based publisher Hearst. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already.
And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our intern is Stephen Lee. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.